John chapter 8, verses uh, 1 to 11. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Oh, is it the other way? Can we go to the second slide of that? Yep. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once the more he bent down on and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Yeah, that's good. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's great to be back here at ICC. Uh, if we haven't met, like uh, Kosen said, my name is Christian, and I had the privilege of preaching here a couple of months ago uh, in the Indonesian service. Uh, it's great to be able to share God's word with you today in English, a language I'm a lot more comfortable with. Uh, now let's begin with this question. How often do you struggle with feelings of guilt? Studies have actually shown that people on average experience five hours of guilty feelings each week. Five hours a week. When I read that, I was like, that's a lot of time feeling guilty every week. Surely we don't feel guilty that often, do we? I thought that until I tried to catalog the times when I felt guilty. Uh, here's my list. Maybe some of it may resonate with you. So this week, I felt guilty for not doing enough in work and ministry. And ironically, I also felt guilty for doing too much and not spending enough time with my wife and kid. Then I've also felt guilty for not calling my parents. I felt guilty for spending too much time on social media, for saying something that may have offended a friend, and of course, for eating one too many chips. The list goes on and on. Now some of you here may think, oh, you see, that's the problem with religious people. Religion and God makes you feel guilty about everything. All this belief in God as a moral judge and obeying religious laws about right and wrong, of course, religious people always feel guilty. And maybe that's why some of you kind of don't, aren't religious or believe in God. You're tired of all the guilt tripping. And so am I. But the problem of guilt is not just experienced by religious people. Many people in this day and age don't believe in God, and yet 
they still struggle with guilt. Professor Deborah Baum, who as far as I'm aware is not religious, says this. Although we tend to blame religion for condemning man to life as a sinner, the guilt that may have once attached to specific vices, vices for which religious communities could prescribe appropriate penance, now seems in a more secular era to surface in relation to just about anything. Food, sex, money, work, unemployment, leisure, health, fitness, politics, family, friends, colleagues, strangers, entertainment, travel, the environment, you name it. Put simply, abandoning religion has not made us feel less guilty, but more. Because now you don't just feel guilty about particular sins, like breaking the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you feel guilty about everything. So here's the problem. Religious people experience feelings of guilt because they believe in God as judge, and he has clear boundaries of righteousness, which they often transgress. However, the non-religious have not been able to resolve guilt in a healthy way by getting rid of God and morality. Instead, their guilt spills out into anything and everything in their life. So neither groups have been able to address the problem of guilt. What's the solution then? Well, the solution is found in this text of scripture, which we have the privilege of opening up today. John 8, verses 1 to 11. Uh, now, this text more particularly addresses condemnation, but that's tied to guilt. The definition of condemnation is to pronounce someone guilty and, to, and subject to punishment. And the reason why we feel guilty and want to avoid or escape our guilty feelings is our guilt points us to our condemnation. So we'll explore... Oh, sorry, this tent keeps happening. Oh, yeah, sorry. So we'll explore condemnation as we go through this text under three points. Our desire to condemn, our fear of condemnation, and Jesus' answer to condemnation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you, Lord, for your word to us today. And thank you for the grace offered by Jesus Christ. Please help us, Lord, uh, as we explore your word today. Um, reveal to us our own feelings, uh, our tendencies to condemn others, and our own um, fear of condemnation. And Lord, we pray that through Jesus Christ we may see the solution that you have provided. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right. So... Verses 1 and 2 sets up the context of this story. Jesus was at the temple teaching the people. Now, being a Jew, he was probably teaching the people about the law of Moses. So this is a perfect place to spring a trap on him. And it was a trap. Look at verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And it's such a good trap, isn't it? Uh, you see, as Messiah, Jesus claimed two things. One, he claims that he promotes mercy and love. Uh, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about loving your enemies. He talks about giving to the needy and forgiving those who sin against you. So with his claim to be Messiah, he projects himself as compassionate, gracious, 
loving, and merciful. But on the other end, he claims to be the fulfillment of the law of Moses. He says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that not one dot or tittle will pass away until the law is accomplished. Now, the religious leaders knew there was a tension with these two things. How can someone be both compassionate and uphold the law at the same time? Because the law demands penalty for sin. How can you forgive sinners and judge sin? It's impossible. So they tested him. In verse 5, they, when they say in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, they're probably drawing from Leviticus. So in Leviticus 20 verse 10, it says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So they brought before him a woman caught in adultery and asked him what he would do, to stone her or not. Now notice the genius of the trap. If Jesus said to stone her, well, that shows Jesus isn't as compassionate and merciful as he claims to be. But if Jesus said don't stone her, well, that shows Jesus doesn't uphold and fulfill God's law because he's actually relaxing it. Put simply, Jesus must either sacrifice his commitment to grace and mercy or sacrifices commitment to God's law and justice. And before we go further on this, I do want to note that this actually isn't just a tension with Jesus Christ himself. This is a tension with the character of God. See, when God revealed himself to Moses, he gave Moses a summary of who he is. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now since that moment, this has been the chief summary of who God is in Israel. And notice the tension in that statement. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In the character of God himself, there seems to be this tension of his claim to be forgiving, but also his claim to never clear the guilty. And this is the tension we get to explore today. It's the heart of God. And it's the heart of Jesus Christ. It's almost as if they have the same heart. But before we explore God's heart, let's explore the heart of the religious leaders, because in that we might find our own hearts as well. Let's go to our first point, our desire to condemn. Uh, look at verses one to six. Here with the religious leaders, we see a heart that desires to condemn. A heart that desires to judge. Uh, they wanted to commit, com condemn the woman caught in adultery, and they wanted to condemn Jesus. Uh, with the woman caught in adultery, the way the story is written, our inclination is to feel sorry 
for her because it looks like she's being dragged to execution by a lynch mob. And we should feel sorry for her. She's vulnerable and exposed. But she was caught in the act of adultery. And here John uses the technical word for adultery, literally a married or engaged spouse having an affair. Now I think this room is big enough. There are people here who have likely experienced the absolute destruction of a marital affair. Either you have been cheated on or one of your parents cheated. You know firsthand how destructive, chaotic, and painful that is. Now, some of you may have been cheated on while you were still dating, and even that did something to you. You lose your bearings, you doubt yourself, you doubt others, you don't know if you can trust anymore. Not to mention the mental health ramifications that come from being cheated on or having a parent involved in an affair. A lot of chaos comes from adultery, so her sin should not be taken lightly. And just as a pastoral aside, if some of you have experienced this, no matter what your partner said, it was not you. A commitment to be faithful is a commitment to be faithful. Now at the root of our desire, oh sorry, and at the heart of our desire to condemn is the, the desire actually to want justice when someone creates that kind of pain, trauma, and chaos in our lives. So at the root of our desire to condemn isn't necessarily something evil. At the root of our desire to condemn is a hunger for justice. We want people who are wrong, people who hurt others, to pay for their transgression. If not so they can feel some semblance of our own pain, then so it would stop them from repeating their actions and causing more pain to others. That's at the heart of our desire to condemn, justice. And we can appreciate that when it comes to sin. But there's also a more sinister reason behind why we want to condemn others. And we see that in the religious desire to condemn Jesus. You see, this is not the first time Jesus went to the temple. Um, sorry. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. So the first time Jesus went to the temple in this gospel, he was furious over how they turned this place of worship into a place of business. He made a whip and drove the businesses out and overturned tables saying, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So the first time he enters the temple, he's chastising the religious leaders for allowing the temple to become a market. And listen carefully to their response. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Authority. They hated that Jesus assumed he had the authority to rebuke them for running the temple, for, the, for how they're running the temple. You see, the second reason we desire to condemn is for power. We want control over our own lives. If a person is condemned in our eyes, then we don't need to listen 
to their critique or their feedback because they're a horrible person anyway. So what is motivating the religious leaders here with Jesus is to take away his power and restore their own. And that's what we do as well. When someone tells us something we don't want to hear or calls us out on something, our immediate reaction is to defend ourselves and condemn them. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? You can't even manage your own. You're one to talk. See, what is often disguised in our desire to condemn is actually a desire for power. But is that all that's at play? A desire for justice or a desire for power? There's actually something a lot deeper going on in our hearts. And that's our next point, our fear of condemnation. Uh, look at verse 7. Sorry, next slide. Yeah. It's brilliant how Jesus responds to their trap. He simply responds, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Uh, now let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus is not saying that only people who are sinless and morally perfect can judge and condemn. See, that would not have been how the law of Moses worked. Priests and judges in Israel sinned like everyone else. So it wouldn't be a condition for them to not have sinned before enforcing the law. What Jesus is actually doing is pointing out their own sin in bringing her. Their own sin in this whole case. I wonder if you realized a few things that were off about how they brought her to Jesus. Let's go back to Leviticus 2010. Leviticus demanded the stoning of both the man and woman if they're found committing adultery. She was not committing adultery by herself. And yet, she was the only one brought to Jesus. And what does this suggest? It suggests they let the man go. Maybe even the man was in their midst. Maybe they were part of the conspiracy. He was part of the conspiracy to trap Jesus. Maybe he was part of the crowd. Either that or because he's a man, they let him escape judgment. To draw from Orwell's animal farm, apparently some sinners are more equal than others. The religious leaders are guilty of having double standards between men and women and letting the man off easy but condemning the woman, as was typically the case back then. Thus, they're guilty of the sin of partiality. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Secondly, there was no trial. Deuteronomy 1.16, says, I charged your judges at that time, give the members of your community a fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another, whether citizen or resident alien. In Moses' law, the woman should have had a fair trial before this rushed execution. And finally, 
if their conscience was clear about all of the above, then it's actually not Jesus, but the witnesses who should throw the first stone. Deuteronomy 17.7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. That's why Jesus said, let the one without sin throw the first stone. Now what's Jesus showing them here? He's showing them, for all their talk about the law of Moses and justice, they haven't even kept it. He hasn't even begun delving into their private life. But on this matter alone, they haven't kept it. Who are they to try and condemn the woman for not obeying it when they can't even? Showing partiality and then dragging her to execution without a trial. Jesus is showing them for all their talk about desiring justice, they cannot even see the injustice in their own heart. And friends, neither can we. We often condemn other people, don't we? We kind of judge them. Oh, this person's not working hard enough. Oh, I don't think they love their family enough. Or they're not serving enough, so they probably don't love God that much. We see people condemning each other all the time on social media. Just look on both sides of politics or the Israel-Hamas issue. But we don't realize the injustice and sin in our own heart. Until, like here, Jesus shows it to us. With that one comment, the mob went away one by one, realizing that they haven't at all kept the law of Moses. They haven't lived up to their own ideals. And here's what they likely realized with Jesus' words. This woman isn't the only one deserving condemnation. They are too. They are guilty of partiality, guilty of hasty judgment, guilty of jealousy. And friends, this is our truth too. We often desire to condemn because we sense our own condemnation, don't we? We have sinned, we have wronged, we have hurt and caused pain to ourselves and to others. We have sinned against God and it is weighing on our conscience. And so, as condemned people, we condemn others to make ourselves feel better. We condemn others so we don't feel alone in our condemnation. I'm bad, but at least I'm not as bad as that person. We fear condemnation in ourselves, and so we condemn other people. And we think by condemning others, we are somehow escaping the condemnation in our own heart. But we're not, are we? Because it's still there, isn't it? That's not the solution. But if that's not the solution, what is the solution? Are we destined to just live in condemnation? Let's see what the last two verses of this passage says. Our third point, Jesus' answer to condemnation. Uh, look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, 
No one, Lord. So Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Now that's an interesting line, isn't it? That last line. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But he also says, sin no more. Which means the woman actually did sin. She committed adultery. In other words, the woman was guilty. However, Jesus says, I do not condemn you. That's Jesus' verdict for this woman. Guilty and not condemned. If you think about the tension in God and the Messiah at the start between compassion and justice, does that mean Jesus leans towards compassion? He's merciful and compassionate, but not really just. The families that the woman and her affair partner ruined won't really get any sense of justice from what they did to them. Is Jesus merciful, but not just? Or is this story not fully complete until we read the rest of John's Gospel? You see, earlier in uh, this Gospel, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. But how? How would Jesus save those destined for condemnation? Uh, Believe it or not, this actually isn't the only time this situation happened in the Gospels. There was actually another instance instance where this happened again. See, later on in John 18 and 19, we read of another person who the religious leaders brought to be executed. Only this time, they dragged him to the Roman governor, Pilate. You see, under the law of Moses, they found this person committed blasphemy for claiming to be God. And under Roman law, he committed treason for claiming to be king. And the penalty for both is execution. And like this situation, they asked Pilate, so what do you say? Now Pilate responded differently to Jesus on on two different levels. You see here, Pilate said that this person was innocent, saying, I find no guilt in him. But here's the other thing that was different. Despite his innocence, he was still executed. Well, this person, of course, is Jesus Christ. So if you want to ask, how can the final verdict for the woman be guilty but not condemned? Well, it's because the final verdict for Jesus was innocent, yet condemned. In other words, Jesus was condemned in her place. Jesus took her 
condemnation. He went to the cross, suffered, and died for her sin. He was executed in her place. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, then he took your condemnation too. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross and was executed for sins he did not commit, so sinners like us can be given a righteousness we never earned. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, you likely have a sense of your guilt and condemnation for the things you've done in the past, for the things you didn't do but should have done, for the harm and pain you've caused other people because of your sins, mistakes, and actions. You are not going to be able to address those feelings of guilt and condemnation by denying the existence of morality or God. Because fundamentally, those things demand payment. It demands restitution. And there are some things you cannot restore. There are things that are so damaged and ruined because of you that you have no hope of making it up to the people you hurt. Without Christ, you have no way to resolve that guilt and condemnation. But in Christ, you can. He was condemned in your place. Turn to him and turn away from a life of condemnation. Jesus has provided a way out. Are you guilty for what you've done? Yes. Need you be condemned? No. The gospel offers us freedom from condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I encourage you, if you are not a Christian, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. Find the forgiveness you desperately need in him and know the love that he's shown to this woman caught in adultery. Now, if you're here today and you are a Christian, my question to you is, do you still feel condemned? Maybe, maybe after becoming a Christian, there are still sins in your life that you struggle with. Same verse, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you don't feel that condemnation, then the application for you is to go and sin no more. Uh, look at the order of Jesus' words in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now it feels like upside down logic, doesn't it? Jesus is saying when he removes your condemnation, you can now stop sinning. Isn't it normally people don't want to sin because they're afraid of condemnation? But this is how the gospel works. 
See, the more you realize and believe that you are not condemned, the, more, the less likely you will be inclined to sin. Why? Because at the root of every sin is a hunger for love. And you don't believe you are loved unless you are. You think that you will only be loved by God only if you are completely perfect. Christian, do you know why you still sin? You don't think you're loved. You don't really believe it. So because of that, you would actually rather relate to God through the law and relate to him as a judge, like these religious leaders do, rather than as a father. But Romans 6.14 said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You are no longer under law, but under grace. And God lavishes his grace and love on you, so you would be completely satisfied in him. And being completely satisfied in him, you would no longer need to sin. For you have the love that you've been desperately yearning for all the days of your life. So, brothers and sisters, sin no more because Jesus does not condemn you. Let's pray.